Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So there is a singer-songwriter producer named Jerry Williams. He has made a ton of stone-cold classic records for over 60 years. And since 1970, he has recorded them under the name Swamp Dog. Maybe you've heard of Swamp Dog. Anyway, back in the 60s, he put out this song called Baby, You're My Everything. Sounds like this. Baby, 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 you're my was a sort of hit, mostly in Vermont, where, it turns out, listeners thought that Swamp Dog was white, which he is not. Some guy booked me up there, right? I was supposed to do two shows. When I finished singing, the promoter called me over. He said, look here, man, here's the rest of your money, but you don't have to do the next show. Uh we thought you was white. <laughs> I, said, I said, no, I ain't white. But, you know, I took the money and left. I mean, wasn't, wasn't nothing to say. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you argue that? He thought I was white. I thought I was black. <laughs> it's Bullseye. Coming up, Swamp Dog. A brilliant musician, a great storyteller, and a guy who isn't afraid to get into his underwear on an album cover or two. I don't know why I have this desire periodically to get naked. Then Joel Kim Booster, a brilliant young comic with a compelling, understated, and unique stage persona. My brand on stage and online is Hot Idiot. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm going for. And if I can, and I think it's a lot like um, it, you have to be a good singer to sing deliberately off key. And I think you have to be smart to be, um, to play that dumb at well. Finally, I'll tell you about a breathtaking, unfathomable work of art that grew up in a backyard right here in Los Angeles. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Swamp Dog. It's his third time on our show. A rare honor, but one that the man has earned. Swamp Dog is the recording name of the singer and songwriter Jerry Williams. He started in show business as a kid. He put out his first song at 12 with his mom playing drums. At first he was a singer touring as Little Jerry Williams. Then in the 60s he was a record company man. He worked A&R, produced bands, he wrote a couple of R&B hits with his friend Gary U.S. Bonds. But it's his music as Swamp Dog that makes him a legend today. It's a hard discography to classify. It's straight soul music pushed through a surreal, hilarious, psychedelic lens. And it's all sung by a voice that is very distinctive. It's one of my favorites. I mean... Listen to this Swamp Dog track, a cover of John Prine's song, Sam Stone. There's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing. 
These days, more and more people are getting hip to Swamp Dog. His old LPs have been reissued, and he's still making records. He's closing in on two dozen albums now. He's got a new one out. It's called Love, Loss, and Auto-Tune. On it, he has collaborated with folks like Justin Vernon from Bon Iver, Guitar Shorty, and the whole thing is produced by Ryan Olson of the synth-pop band Polisa. It's another left turn in a career full of left turns. Let's take a listen to a single from Love, Loss, and Auto-Tune. It's called I'll Pretend. I'll pretend that you're gone on vacation And you'll be back in a week or maybe two And when the phone rings, I'll pretend it's you calling to tell me you miss me and you coming home soon. Swamp Dog, it's nice to see you again. Thank you for coming back. Hey, man, thanks for having me back. It's been a long time. You know, I didn't know how many musicians were through your house when you were a little kid. Um, where'd you grow up? Portsmouth, Virginia. And so how did you end up with these dudes rolling through your house? Well, there weren't any black hotels, uh, motels in um, Virginia. Now, my mother and my father were musicians, and they were always on the road. And... They would work with some of these people, and they just got to know some of these people. And they would ask them, so, look, we headed to Virginia, so where can we, where can we stay? Well, we had a big house. When I say big, it was like four extra bedrooms in there after us. They would go there and stay. I met people like Louis Jordan, who came by the house to pick up his band. And um, very few of the leaders stayed there. And I think back now, I wonder where the hell they stayed. <laughs> they might have, of course, they might have had girlfriends and so forth. Everybody had girlfriends in every town. Yeah, I, I met all of these guys when they would come by to pick up their band, sometimes they'd get out the car and come up on the front porch. A lot of this was in the summertime. And come up on the front porch and they'd talk. And I was look at I was listening and sucking it in, you know, and and I wanted to be a singer. Bad enough some Yes, me, how did I get to meet these people? Is that what you asked? Yeah, I think so. Oh yeah. But that's basically it. And then when I would go to the theaters, the ones that I didn't know, it was only one exit out of this theater. And um, when they would come out, you could stop them. You know, say, hey, man, I really enjoyed it. Uh, My name is, you know, 
the whole thing. Right. And uh, it was funny. They, they had a law down there where they had to keep all the doors locked but one. So they would cl- pull the door together, and they had chains around it. Now, if one of those theaters had caught on fire, it would have been a But the white theaters didn't have that. Everywhere you saw an exit sign, all you had to do was push the bar and go on out. Just they wanted to burn up all the So when you first started recording, nobody knew you as Swamp Dog. You wouldn't be Swamp Dog for quite a while afterwards. Uh, at the time, you were Jerry Williams. In fact, you were recording as Little Jerry Williams. This is a song called HTD Blues from 1954. How old were you? Twelve. Let's hear it. Hey, baby, I like to tell you how I feel. Well, baby, I like to tell you how I feel. How you begin by my clothes? And every day give me a free meal. Oh, well, I got the blues up from the country down. Oh, well, I've got the blues up from the country down. Oh, well, the kind of blues I got, you can get them in a town. Oh, now I know I drink my whiskey and sometimes get carried away. Oh, now I know I drink my whiskey and sometimes get carried away. Was that the were other members of your family playing on that record? Yeah, that was my mama on drums, and uh, my father on guitar, and uh, I guess his brother, my uncle, on bass. You must have been quite the attraction. I mean, for one thing, I imagine you were probably a pretty small kid, because you're not that big a dude right now. Hey, thanks, man. Appreciate that. I I need to be wrong. <laughs> I should have stayed in bed. <laughs> <laughs> a medium-sized man now. <laughs> Woo. Thank you. <laughs> but it must have been something for people to come out and see you 12 years old singing like you were Big Joe Turner or you were Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, I um, I was trying to copy Big Joe Turner with that thing when I sung. And, uh, of course, I didn't get it. Plus, during that time, hell, I was cute, too, you know. (laughs) I didn't know how fast cute would leave. You're still cute, Swamp. Don't worry. (laughs) Thanks. You're welcome. You must have got that money I sent you in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) When you were, like, 24, you actually had a... A hit record, not a monster huge hit record, but I imagine for you at the time it must have felt like one called Baby You're My Everything. Let's hear a little bit of it and then we'll talk about it. Now, let, let, let me 
correct you just a little bit here. The first chart record was I'm the Lover Man. That went up the pop chart. We didn't get hardly any black play. The only black radio play I remember was by a big disc jockey in Philadelphia called Lord Fat Man. And WIBG, which was like the monster pop station, you could hear that some in hell, you know. They taped it off of his show. It was so hot. The record went up in the 40s. That was my first hit record. The only thing about it, it was only played on white stations around the country, and they thought I was, like, number one in some part of Vermont or somewhere. I mean, somewhere <laughs> it was cold as hell and with no blacks. And they, <laughs> some guy booked me up there, right? And I showed up. I was supposed to do two shows. When I finished singing, the promoter called me over. He said, look here, man, here's the rest of your money, but you don't have to do the next show. Uh, we thought you was white. <laughs> I, said, I said, no, I ain't white. But, you know, I took the money and left. I mean, wasn't wasn't nothing to say. I mean, how, how do you... <laughs> How do you argue that? He thought I was white. I thought I was black. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the soul singer, producer, and songwriter Swamp Dog. His new record is called Love, Loss, and Auto-Tune. It's out now. What did people think of your singing voice? Because that, oh. that song that we just heard, that's about as sweet as it gets mm-hmm. for one of your vocals. It it sounds, you know, it it gets towards sounding like a Swamp Dog record in, yeah. the, in the singing, but you know, in the beginning, it sounds like a it, it sounds like a sweet soul singer. Yeah. Um, but your voice is probably the you know one of the most distinctive parts about you as a performer. I mean, I remember one time in college playing one of your records on the radio when I had a music show. And they- this old, it was in Santa Cruz. No, <laughs> this, this old hippie called me up, which was the only people that ever called the radio station uh-huh. in Santa Cruz. You'll be surprised to hear. Pick up the phone. This nice old hippie says, hey, man, what was that record? It sounded like if Van Morrison had a baby with Cher. <laughs> and, like, I think he meant it as a compliment. Yeah. I certainly knew exactly what he was talking about. <laughs> I I've been compared to Van Morrison so much that in the last year, because people ask me, what kind of music do I sing? Damn if I know, because everything keeps changing in in my productions and my songs. I mean, you got this auto-tune record out. I think the last time you were on the show, <laughs> I, ta- I was talking to you about a Soka record. Yeah, yeah. My music keep changing, but the songs don't always compliment. I'll do something that's almost spiritual, and I'll turn around and do something about screwing, you know. But to me, that's spiritual, you know. 
Can't get more spiritual, boy, than a good band. <laughs> but anywho, uh, I digress. <laughs> so let's get back to your uh, your earlier days, your Jerry Williams days. Were you touring a lot? Yeah. I played places and, like, I, I played the, uh, the Brevoort Theater. And this was more money than I had ever made. I think I was getting $1,500 a night for three nights. Oh, I was going, oh, things I had planned. Then, as Baby My Everything started getting big and I was traveling, the only way I could figure out how to keep some money was skip out on the hotel bills, right? So I must owe every hotel in Cleveland, you know, this. <laughs> I used to throw parties and and then I would, I became a master at slipping out the hotel. I don't care what floor I was on or whatever. I had one that was really good. I used to send telegrams to myself uh, to whatever hotel I was in. And I could just about figure out when it was about time for them to bring the hammer down, you know, because I'm up there eating lamb chops and Baked Alaska and all kinds of shit, right? So I'd set myself a... You to telegram. A telegram. And uh, it would say something like, Freddie Scott is not going to make it tonight. Will you fill in? I would come back. I'd be outside the hotel. I'd come back to the hotel. This was at the Taft in New York. When I would come in, the people at the desk would run and grab me and say, hey, man, you got an emergency. They want you in Boston, you know, to play the Sugar Shack, so you better get ready. I was already ready. My <laughs> was already packed. <laughs> and then I'd come down, I'd walk up to the thing, and... Uh, I'd leave notes for where I would be and and go right across the street to the Victoria <laughs> <laughs> and check in. The only thing you needed to check into a hotel was a suitcase. That's all. Just, a, just to prove you're a traveler. Just need a suitcase. So I kept suitcases. And... <laughs> <laughs> We'll finish up my interview with Swamp Dog after a short break. Stay with us. When we return, what's it like after a six-decade career to be a music legend who still performs today? Swamp Dog has the answer. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from our sponsor, Zegram Expeditions. Some believe all of Earth's great stories are in the past, told long ago by the likes of Darwin or Magellan. But Zegram believes the greatest stories still lie ahead. And they start with you. Because you're an explorer, and great explorers go together. Start planning your expedition with them at greatexplorersgo.com. <laughs> 
Hey, Asma. Hey, Scott. Another crazy week. We've got North Korea. Yep, we got Russia. Midterms. And of course, President Trump. And what happens whenever there is crazy news that erupts? We pop into the studio and break it down to make sense. So if you see a headline, we've discussed it. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. Ballparker panel, we have just 30 seconds to prove to Max Fund listeners that we know what the F we're talking about when it comes to pop culture. All right, you guys, let's go. Famous Chris's. Walk-in. Christofferson. Hemsworth. Karen, what's the most iconic lesbian snack? The wings at Hooters. The answer is fried green tomatoes. Margaret, what is the Marvel Cinematic Universe missing? <laughs> My interest. Winter, name someone who will EGOT in your lifetime. Ike Barinholtz. That's beautiful. Top gear or top model? Sadly, I have to say top gear. The clear answer is top chef. But top model taught us about smizing. Pop Rocket, smart takes on everything. Catch us every Friday on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Swamp Dog. He's a singer and songwriter who's been in the game over 60 years. Dozens of solo albums. His latest record is called Love, Loss, and Auto-Tune. It's out now. This song we're hearing right now is called Synthetic World, one of the first singles he released as Swamp Dog, from one of my all-time favorite records, Total Destruction to Your Mind. Swamp wrote the album when he was working for Atlantic Records in the late 1960s. Back then, he was part of a shop of truly elite-level songwriters. Two of his most frequent collaborators were Gary U.S. Bonds and Charlie Whitehead. We were the three writers on a lot of stuff. And we were writing that was really great. Well, we thought it was great. You know, me just playing the piano and singing. I said, man, these songs don't relate to shit. You know, <laughs> it's just songs, you know, but songs we like. Like Mama's Baby Daddy's Maybe, then Salafasta, which was nothing. It's wild nonsense words. Yeah. I just have to always stay plastered on Salafasta from That just meant that we were dropping a little acid. <laughs> we wrote all this and I said, man, I can't put this out of Jerry Williams. And Gary Barr said, man, I ain't touching it with a 10-foot pole. You know, and, like, <laughs> and Charlie Whitehead, I had already renamed him Raw Spit, you know. So he shot the record around the industry and gave himself a new name, Swamp Dog. And here's a surprise. Major labels weren't biting. Most of them just wanted to release a couple of the tracks as singles recorded by other artists. So he took the album to a little label called Canyon Records and got the whole thing put out as one LP, Total Destruction to Your Mind. And for the album art, he went with a genuinely baffling photograph of him reading a magazine in his underpants with what looks like a stainless steel pot on his head. And he's sitting in, I guess, maybe the bed of a truck. People still write about what it is that I'm doing. They don't know. They, but it's all right. I'm sitting on some snow on the, back of a, on the back of a truck with the gate down. And I got on 
shorts, I believe, and I got a cap on that we made real fast out of some cardboard that was that we made it look like a graduation hat, but it really it needed about fifteen minutes more work than really. <laughs> To, to really make it right, you know. But we didn't. And my photographer, he thought it was great because his only job had been taking photos of criminals down at the police station. You know, his name was Willis Hogan. So... He uh, he helped me with the white rat too. <laughs> he, this is your your second album, Rat On, which features you astride a, yeah. a beautiful steed that is a, a white rat. Yeah. Uh, you also have taken a number of pictures in your underpants. Yeah, that's a common theme. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I have this desire periodically to get naked. You know, I just, but I don't go all the way. Are you enjoying being a legend? What else can I do? (laughs) It's like seeing a corpse there smiling and say, you enjoy being a corpse. (laughs) No, man, I just can't figure out how to get out of this thing. What was the question? The question was, I mean, in 1972, did you think that your legacy, when you were making these Swamp Dog records, were you thinking, I'm making the ultimate me? No. This is what people are going to remember me for. No. Or did you think you were just making a lark? These are the songs that were too weird to to no. sell to Solomon Burke or whatever. No. No. My thing was built on love. I love writing and I'd write a song and then I'd call my wife down to the basement and say what do you think of this you know and sometimes she would say don't put that line in that's not good and I uh, I'm dealing with Justin Vernon yeah well you know Justin right I don't know him personally but I know who he is yeah okay He's part of the family. And then we got, uh, yeah, Ryan Olson, who's got Polizzi or something like that, Polizica. He's the one who did all of the the sound effects and so forth. Because what I did, I, I, made a, I made a record with all the stuff in it I wanted to do. Then I handed it to him to do anything he wanted to do with it. And he did. <laughs> uh, took me three days to figure out if I liked it. So, but I do. I'm crazy about it. Um, and we 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 opened. We opened for Bon Iver. We opened two shows for him at Ryan Auditorium a couple months ago. What did the tight pants white people community think about it? I was shocked. First of all, when they called my name, 
They stood up and applauded. They knew my Not all of them, you know, but over half had heard of me. And I didn't do anything from the album. And um, they loved it. Swamp, where, where you got to go? You got someplace to be. Not, <laughs> oh, wait, somebody's got to be in here. Tights and Fights are here. Who? Yeah, we got another show. It's got to use the studio. No. But Swamp, thank you so <laughs> thank you so much for coming and being here. It's so nice to see you again. I'm not finished. Yeah, I know, but we got to go. No. We've been here an hour and a half. I don't want We did pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and now the purple dusk of twilight time. Swamp Dog, ladies and gentlemen. His new album, Love, Loss, and Auto-Tune, is out now. It's wonderful. If you haven't heard any of his records before, please check them out. Uh, If you're looking for a place to start, I sincerely think that his record, Total Destruction to Your Mind, is one of the greatest soul albums ever recorded. It is just an absolute gem. And you know, his, his other records are pretty darn good, too. Can't go wrong with Swamp. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Uh, Quick warning, by the way, this next segment features a little bit of frank talk about sex. If if that isn't the kind of thing you want to hear, just a heads up. The segment in question, an interview with Joel Kim Booster. Joel is a writer and comedian. He's written for Billy on the Street, Problematic with Moshe Kasher, and Netflix's Big Mouth. And as a stand-up, he's appeared on Conan, on Comedy Central, on At Midnight, and more. He's also one of the most exciting new comics around. Why? Well, there's his biography, which he works into his act. He's Korean-American. He was adopted and raised by a white family in suburban Illinois. His upbringing was very conservative and very religious. He was homeschooled until he hit his teens. And as if that weren't all hard enough, he came out at 17, moved out of his parents' house shortly after. There's also his stage presence, which is confident, almost preposterously confident, and also sometimes vulnerable. He's not afraid to show his flaws. And I think he actually, really sincerely, loves chain restaurants. Take a listen to this clip. It's from his terrific debut album, Model Minority. In this bit, Joel is talking about one of his biggest pet peeves, when white people try to guess his ethnicity. I do have to say, I actually, I, I hate it when they guess correctly, though, because it's almost always worse for me. Because, like, for instance, I, I waited tables uh, at the Olive Garden for two years in college. Hold for applause. <laughs> uh, again, you know, when I have to ask for it, it means less. Um, no, I worked there for two years, and I will always remember this. I walked up to a table. It was, like, a table of three, like, older white guys. And I, you know, I introduced myself, and I got them their breadsticks. And then at one point, one of them just turns around and looks at me, and he's like, hey, son, are you Korean? And I was like, yeah, I am. That's an amazing guess. Like, how did you know that? And he was like, well, I fought in the Korean War, so I know a thing or two about that. And I was like, oh. <laughs> what does that mean for this relationship now? You know? <laughs> You've put me in an odd place. Uh, Do you need a new server? Are you having a flashback? What is the situation? 
Joel wow. Kim Booster, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much. I hate listening to myself. <laughs> This is going to be a long interview for me um, as we listen to these clips of bits that I now hate. Um, Good news, JKB. I've... We're recording this whole thing. We're going to run it on the radio. Um, thank you so much for having me. Of course. It's a, it's a joy to have you on the show. So I didn't know before I heard this album that you were adopted. Yeah. Um, you grew up. In the Midwest, mm -hmm. where in the Midwest did you grow up? Uh, like right outside of Chicago, like 40 minutes outside of Chicago on the south end. So like the southwest suburbs. Um, Plainfield was the name of my town, uh, which sort of sandwiched in between Naperville and Joliet, which are cities that more people know about than Plainfield. What did you think of it when you were growing up there? I loved it growing up. I mean, I think it's an excellent place to leave. Um, uh, but it was sort of, I don't know, it was... Ideal for me in a lot of ways when I was really young. Um, it seemed, I don't know, it was the nice mix of like being close to a target, but there was fields everywhere and cows and shit and um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't really, um, it's only really in hindsight and sort of as I got older that I realized um, that it was not my favorite place to be, I think. Um, I had I had very narrow sort of expectations for a hometown when I was growing up, so it, it suited me fine. Were you self-aware about the fact that uh, you were Korean and everyone that surrounded you was white ethnically in the town that you lived in? Not until much later. I was much more aware. And like full disclosure, this is like a bit. But I mean, I talk about knowing I was gay before knowing I was Asian. And that is something that is unfortunately very true because we were homeschooled. Um, I was homeschooled until I was 16. Um, and it really wasn't until right before middle school or around middle school that I started to sort of be a, more aware of uh, the racial dynamics in my town. Um, but for me, like, you know, I was only at home. I was I hung out with my brother and my sister and my family. And that was pretty much it. My parents didn't have adult friends that they hung out with. We didn't go to a traditional church um, until I was in middle school. So for me, it, it just in my mind, you know, I was just like, this is just what families are, and this is what families look like, and I'm sure every family has uh, an Asian son <laughs> um, in some regard. I was much more preoccupied with the the gay stuff, I think, and being, because even from a really young age, um, you know, that was sort of blasted that this is wrong. You know, nobody ever said that it was wrong that I was... No one was ever sort of aggressively racist in, you know, uh, any way, or at least I wasn't exposed to it um, when I was a kid. So I never thought it was weird or wrong. I just sort of thought that's how it was. It was when I went, we went, my my mom's side of the family is, is in the South, and um, we went to a family reunion in Alabama, in Birmingham, when I was like seven or eight. And that was when I think it really hit me, because there are so many pictures of just like, n you know, 70 people in a photograph and then me. And it is very clear <laughs> that uh, I stick out. So I think that was probably when I started put putting two and two together. Did your parents homeschool you for religious or ideological reasons? Yeah. Or? Um, they, my parents, uh, were and are very evangelical, um, and they were very, um, and, and very right wing, uh, evangelical too, in a way that like, um, I think they, they probably skew more like libertarian, but it's very distrustful of a, the state educating <laughs> your kids and b like not having control over the kinds of knowledge that are, is being transferred, um, 
in public schools, they didn't want me learning about evolution. They didn't want me learning about sex. They didn't want me learning, you know, um, uh, they wanted to make sure that I was, you know, learning about history in a very specific point of view. And, um, yeah. Your older siblings are your parents' biological children. Yes. Um, did, was like part of your life an explanation of the situation? Was like there's something that your parents told you? Um, no. I mean, it, for, for me, like growing up, it was just like a very matter of fact explanation of like, you know, some moms um, aren't ready and um, or can't. And and this is why and, you know, and this happens and and we are so blessed and lucky that, you know, we got to have you instead. I will say, you know, um, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about adoption and and um, and sort of the way it's viewed in the world and stuff like that. But one thing my parents never did and never framed it as and would shut down very quickly when other people would say it is they never when they got like, well, aren't you a lucky boy um, for being adopted? And my parents would always be like, no, no, we're the lucky ones. Like this is not. And I hate it when people are like, oh, you're so lucky that you got rescued or like any time, any framing of that. Like when I see interactions between like adopted kids and, and people out in the world, like that is the most infuriating thing I think for everybody. Cause nobody says that about babies, like biological children. Um, and it's the same concept. Like parenting is parenting. You are, you know, if you want a child, it's if you can't frame it as like, I am doing a good thing by doing this way rather than having a biological kid. And I think like that's one thing my parents really did nail uh, growing up for all their faults is they never made me feel like I was a charity case or that there that they loved me any differently um, than my uh, or they wanted me any differently than my brother and my sister. It was always, you know, we are lucky that we were able to have you. Um, and I think that, I think, is is probably, I don't know, it is why I don't have a lot of angst about it today. Your parents' religion sounds like, at least from your album, like it was a little bit ad hoc. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> well, I think in the album you describe it as retrospectively maybe a cult. Yeah. But um, what was your experience of religion like when in your house when you were a kid? I mean, for us, it was mostly Sundays spent with my dad reading the Bible to us aloud and sort of having like in within our family discussions about it and um, – just sort of the very sort of black and white moralistic view of the world. Um, and for me, that just meant control. Like I felt really controlled in everything that I was consuming in, you know, media wise and what I was allowed to uh, watch and who I was allowed to hang out with and what I was allowed to read. It was really frustrating. I mean, I remember when I was like nine, my parents, um, they listened to every CD and read every book and comic book and everything like that, that and watched every show with us to make sure that it was okay. And I just remember them sitting me down because I wanted the Backstreet Boys CD and I was nine maybe. And they said that, um, you know, upon review, they could not let me get the CD because of the song where the lyrics are, no matter 
who you are, what you've done, where you've been, as long as you love me. And they sat me down, a nine-year-old, and were like, Joel, it does matter what a person has done. And it does matter who they are. Um, and if they don't have, you know, and it just, I was like, I'm nine. <laughs> I want to listen to the Backstreet Boys. Uh, how is, and so like, it was always things like, those situations always stick out to me. Um, because like, that's what I saw religion as for until I probably until I started going to a, a real cuckoo bananas um, evangelical church of my own when I was in uh, middle school that was it was all sort of uh, it, it was never like sort of Jesus focused love focused in my house it was rules focused it was you cannot do this because God does not approve of X Y or Z um, and so it was, it was just very frustrating it was not primed for, <laughs> as something for me to enjoy uh, on my own do you believe in God now? Um, that's a, wow. Um, no, I don't. I think at best I'm an agnostic at this point. It's sort of hard to untangle yourself completely when you've been indoctrinated for you know half your life um, in this certain set of beliefs, and so it's really hard for me to you know say when you grow up looking at the world as sort of like created and there's a plan and, and there is like a, a, another side, I think like that's probably the biggest sticking point for me is it's really hard for me to come to terms with the fact that I will die and that's it. You know, nobody can really wrap their head around it. But for me, um, it's always been easier to believe that I would rather believe that I will be chilling in a house as a ghost for eternity <laughs> than uh, not having anything um, once I'm in the ground. And maybe that makes me a child. I'm sure that there are people who are who, who, who believe that. I know that there are people. There are people in my life who believe that about me. But um yeah, it's it's hard to sort of step away from it completely, I think. I mean, it's good to know that you'd be a chill ghost and not one of those like <laughs> chain rattling ghosts. No, no, no. I think I I I would be I would be fun. I would be um, like with a mimosa and yeah, everything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We'll wrap up my interview with Joel Kim Booster after a short break. He'll talk with me about the feedback, both good and bad that he gets from other Asian Americans and how he deals with it. It's Bullseye for maximumfun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews on Trustpilot. And right now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. How much would you pay to avoid morning traffic? Why are plane tickets to Boise so expensive? I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host of The Indicator. In every episode, we take on a new unexpected idea to help you make sense of the day's news. Listen every afternoon on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Oliver Wong, DJ, scholar, and journalist. And I'm Morgan Rhodes, music supervisor and stiletto devotee. And we host Heat Rocks, a podcast where we invite our favorite musicians, writers, and scholars to talk about the albums that have changed their lives. Morgan, what exactly is a heat rock? It's a record that's like hot fire, combustible. Basically, just a really, really good album. We've taken a deep dive into Nigerian funk from the 70s. He kind of had like a bad reputation in, in town as just being like a sketchy dude. <laughs> and he was just making music that for thousands of miles around him 
He was the only person doing anything like that. 1980s teen comedy soundtracks. This soundtrack always felt the same to me as like when I would find a, a great blazer at a thrift store that I could, I was like, oh, this is going to be me now. We've talked about Prince, Boys to Men, Kendrick Lamar, and everything in between. Heat Rocks, every Thursday here on Maximum Fun. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Joel Kim Booster. He's a stand-up comic who's appeared on Conan, Comedy Central, and more. He's also a writer. He's worked on Billy on the Street and Big Mouth, just to name a couple. He's recorded a really great stand-up record. It's called Model Minority. You worked as a writer for uh, Moshe Kasher's television show on Comedy Central. It was mm-hmm. like a talk show about, um, about like a, a comic dialogue about hot issues. Yeah, the, the ethos of, of which cultural I, conflict. Right. Yeah. It was. It was sort of uh, the ethos. I think really was everybody is wrong a little bit. Um, And so you would sort of we would look at issues through that way and sort of, you know, try and be like, I I, I don't know that I could work on on, uh, both sides, both sides sort of show anymore. (laughs) But um, back then in 2015, it felt very fresh. Um, When you started doing stand up, did you feel like you had to um, either be a club comic, an alternative comic or a gay comic? Mm, Yeah. I mean, those last two are sort of one in the same in many people's eyes, I think. It's still funny to me because when, especially when I was coming up in New York, you know, uh, people would call me an alt comic, which is so wild to me because I was doing basically like, it's pretty standard. I was not pushing the form in any sort of way. You know, I'm I'm not like taking it and like reimagining it and then making it work um, for everybody. I was doing what John Mulaney and Tignataro and Aziz and everybody was doing at the time. It's just observations about my life and things that I've seen and things that have happened to me, you know, and writing a punchline around it. And so it was always very strange to me when people would be like, you're an alt comic because the things that I would be talking about would be eating, you know, and it's like, <laughs> why, you know, it, the structure is the same. I, it's just the, the subject matter, I guess, is a little bit uh, out of left field. But I definitely felt that, especially in um chicago i think i i I felt the pressure to be you know when you're in a smaller city like that i think there's definitely you know more accepted ways to be successful and so you know it's like you got to do these mics and you have to do these shows and then you have to move on and it's like a very set pattern and then you move to a city like new york and suddenly there is no right way to do anything um, and it is sort of you a uh, choose your own adventure of like, well, what kind of career do you want to have? You can sort of cobble it together from any of these venues. And um, I don't know. I, I feel very lucky that it was a really freeing time to be a gay comic. Like there, I think there were moments in comedy, you know, even just a couple of years before I started eight years ago, where one person's success meant that that door was closed for the rest of us. It's sort of like a one-in-one-out sort of situation. And now, I, I don't know, I like so many of my closest friends are comedians, and there is not even... There's like a natural sort of like competition that goes on that just is like running below the surface of any, you know, comedian's career. But for me, it's like, oh, like when John Early or Matteo Lane or Bowen Yang or any of these other comedians, gay comedians are finding success, it just means like there will be more for all of us now. And it's so nice to not have to worry about like anyone uh, like grabbing for the scraps from the table anymore because it does feel like things are changing and there's enough room for everybody at the table. Your comedy character, <laughs> particularly on 
uh, online on Twitter, but also to some extent on stage, I think is probably dumber than you. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And like more romantically desperate. I think, yeah. Um, the my my brand on stage and online is hot idiot. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm going for. And if I can, and I think it's a lot like um, it. You have to be a good singer to sing deliberately off key, and I think you have to be smart to be um, to play that dumb at well. I want to play another clip from, I guess, Joel Kim Booster's album, Model Minority. Um, uh, Joel is talking about gay guys who fetishize Asian men, <laughs> which has a, a name in the gay community that I will allow you to say kindly, Joel. Rice Queen. Um, and this is the moment that uh, he realized he was on a date with one. We went back to his apartment, and he was making me a drink in his kitchen. And I was just looking around his kitchen, and I noticed he had, like, 14 Thai cookbooks. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) I see you now, you know? Like, I see who you are. And it was like a horror movie, you know, because suddenly I, like, I saw his entire apartment, and there were just, like, rice paddy hats everywhere and two, two katanas over the bed, you know? And it was very strange for me. But it got worse. Like, we... Uh, in the middle of foreplay, like I went there with him, I was like, "All of this is fine." And in the middle of foreplay, he leans into my ear, and I do not. He said to me, "So are you gonna be my little geisha boy tonight?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was bad, but you know what's worse is that I stayed. Um, I stayed. Oh God. <laughs> I mean, what's telling to what's what's telling to me about that bit is that. Sure, you're you're calling this guy out on stage, but you're ultimately questioning your own self of sense of self worth. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think there was a tag too that maybe I started doing either before I don't know left, but it was like yeah, I'm pretty sure that guy stopped texting me back uh, <laughs> too, which is maybe the saddest part about that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's so it feels like I mean a lot of this this was all that whole album is material that I've been you know working on for at that point, six or seven years. And so it's so weird to hear that stuff because it's changed so much for me. Now, I mean, I was writing jokes about myself and I and I was being, you know, sort of self-deprecating in a way to make myself more palatable for people. I, there is a special that delves deeply into this. Um, and for me, it just, like, wasn't helpful. And it's not how I really feel about myself now. And so there was, like, a shift, like, right around the time I was recording that album where I was like, oh, but, like, this isn't, this isn't, like, my, this isn't being honest. Like, and this outlet for me is so refreshing because I, it feels like, uh, I'm able to be as honest as I as I can be, and that's like, for me as an artist, like, in, especially as a comedian, that's the question I always ask myself: Is this funny? Is this honest? And is this new? Or is this inter- is this interesting? And for for me, a lot of those jokes now, when I listen back to them, they are still funny to me, and 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 they are real in the sense of that that was what I was. That's the life that I had when I wrote them. But for me now, like to say that joke, it's just so weird because I'd I'd have to really refigure it out for me now because, um, I don't know. I wouldn't stay now. <laughs> that's I guess the the bottom line is I wouldn't stay. Do you feel like you have to deal with the expectations of Asian American fans because you, you know, you share many experiences Mm -hmm. with other Asian Americans and Korean Americans? Certainly, you know what it feels like to walk into a room 
full of white dudes mm-hmm. and be the only Asian guy yeah. or whatever, for example. That is sort of the our, yeah. Everybody knows what that's like uh, um, in our community. But like, I I don't know. Uh, you know, you never have the experience of bringing something to school for lunch that other people thought smelled no. weird or these yeah. other things. That um, my parents are white, and I had that, and uh, you know, they are have their families have been here for however long, and you know, we had uh, our traditions were very midwestern and and everything like that. So there is a lot that I I feel a little boxed out of um, experience wise, and I think is uh, uh, sort of frustrating to to some people that see my success and are maybe frustrated that I don't represent that side of the Asian American experience, the sort of, you know, second, third generation experience. And I guess for me, like, I don't know, I'm really fascinated by what is the, the Asian American experience. Like, what is the culture that we have created for ourselves here that is sort of... Um, as a byproduct of be, uh, of just exist, existing together as this race of people, not sort of as a, a culture from what we're bringing. I don't know. It's it's difficult. It's it's hard, and it's something that I'm sort of trying to figure out. Like as I go on, and I I hear it. I hear uh, I hear from a lot of Asian people who are who don't like me or my material, and I especially hear. I think I especially hear from Asian men who are very frustrated with. Like, oh, they put another, you know, a feminine Asian guy on TV. Of course they did. This is a the media conspiracy uh, uh, conspiring against Asian men to de- emasculate all of us. And that's always a little hard to absorb, that I am the face of a media conspiracy <laughs> uh, to emasculate Asian men. Because I, I don't know that I necessarily feel that way about myself. But um you do talk in your album about how big your junk is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To that. your credit. <laughs> Working against the conspiracy. I I don't know. I'm just like, and it's so weird. It is so weird to represent two minorities uh, in, and especially as like the, the audience gets bigger and the, the platforms get bigger that the opportunities that are, that I'm, you know, offered are, are getting bigger and bigger. It is a very stressful sort of thought process I have to go through of like, am I being, you know, the right representation for a gay man and and Asian men and Asian people and adoptees and, and this, that, and the other thing. And it's just, I, I really wish I could just really think about, is this funny and not have to um, worry about that other stuff. And I ultimately do, you know, um, but it's there. And it's, you know, I do feel uh, some responsibility to, I don't know, make sure that everybody knows that this is my experience, my personal experience, my very specific experience. And I'm not trying to speak for either of these communities when I talk about, you know, any uh, any of the, you know, experiences that I talk about on stage. But it'll never change. I, I will always get the blowback no matter what. And I am, I don't know, I'm okay with it. You just sort of have to build that, you know, defense, the the armor and let it wash off you i'm 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 literally i think i'm having a stroke as i'm saying these words <laughs> can you tell that like these sentences have no end there is no punctuation anymore i am literally about to have a stroke um i hope any of this is useable joel kimbooster i'm so grateful to you for taking all this time yeah. to be on bullseye it was really I, great to get to talk me. to you again i hope anything i said made sense and is it makes me seem um smarter than i actually am Joel Kim Booster. His debut album, Model Minority, is seriously one of our favorites around the office. You can purchase it or stream it pretty much anywhere. You can find out the latest about Joel on his website, IHateJoelKim.com. 
We're getting close to the end of Bullseye, but before we go, allow me to give you a culture tip. It's the outshot. Simon Rodia had a full life before he moved to Watts. He'd come from Italy as a 15-year-old to join his older brother in Pennsylvania. They worked side-by-side in the coal mines, at least until the older Rodia was killed in an accident. Simon ended up pulling up stakes and moving across the country to Seattle. He met a girl and married, then moved with her to Oakland and had two children. Then he divorced and headed south to the outskirts of L.A. Rodia then was four foot ten, forty-two years old, barely literate, alone, and working odd jobs. But he wanted to make something big. In 1921, he bought himself a cottage on the railroad tracks. The geometry of the lot was strange. The train right-of-way cut it into a long triangle with a little house at its base. Rodia settled in, and he decided to dedicate his life to building something. I built a tower myself, and I've got a bed in my mind. I know I want to do something. I, I, I say, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. Rodia's materials surrounded him. He found scrap rebar and braced it under the railroad tracks to bend it. He mixed sand with concrete that he took home from the construction sites he worked on. He grabbed kitchen tile from a job at a tile works, and he found glass bottle shards on the sidewalk. He walked along the railroad tracks from Watts all the way to the ocean, to gather shells, then back to use them. It was an hour and a half walk on his way out, and two and a half hours back, weighted down with shells. Most days he'd put in regular hours as a laborer, then come home to build. Just him, no help. Day after day after day. Bending rebar, building joints with coat hangers and chicken wire, layering concrete, pushing in shells and bits of colored glass, for 30 years, he added, built up, embellished. Yeah, I did all by myself. I never had a single helper. One thing, I couldn't hire any helper. I don't have no money. Not a thing. If I hire a man, he don't know what to do. A million of times, I don't know what to do myself. I was wake up all night. As a depression and a world war and the atomic bomb passed by, Rodia worked in his little wedge of backyard, first decorating the little cottage, then starting in on huge, glittering towers, climbing up them without ropes, just a bucket, some hand tools, and a lineman strap. He built magnificent, glittering spires, concentric rings, 99 and a half feet tall, like a spacecraft built of mud and crystals. Towers aligned along the axis of the triangle, like the masts of a sailing ship, pointing back east toward the country and the family that he left as a child. And then, when he was done, he was done. In 1954, 30-some years after he started, he gave the property to his neighbor, and packed his bags for his sister's house, 400 miles away. He never once went back. Decades were spent fighting for the towers. 
Neighbors who'd known them all their lives, artists and architects awed by their audacity, folks who were proud to have something that magical there in the outskirts of L.A. At one point, city engineers hooked up a pickup truck and a cable to the tallest tower. If it could take 10,000 pounds of lateral force, they said, they'd leave it there. If not, they'd lay the whole thing flat. An anxious crowd gathered outside to protest. The towers made it through the test, through the earthquakes, fires. They stood through everything. When the city was trying to take them down, they called the towers an unauthorized public hazard, built with, and this is a quote, no rational plan. And part of that is true. There was no rational plan. Art is not rational. If it's any good, it's much more than that. The site finally became a park in 1985. At the base of the Watts Towers, Simon Rodia impressed his hand tools into the concrete and the letters SR. He was an artist who'd built something to last forever. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where our colleague Daniel saw a mysterious creature in the lake, a dark blob that occasionally comes to the surface. We managed to bring our high-powered binoculars and their stand over, but struggled to focus them in time to identify this blob. There's honestly no way of knowing what it is but it's probably a few fish that are close together. No matter what, we'd like to register our concern. Bullseye is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shana Deloria. Daniel Baruela is our dark blob in the water spotter. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was recorded by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Our theme song was provided to us by the Go Team and by their label, Memphis Industries Records. Our thanks to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, there are hundreds on our website. Just go to MaximumFun.org. You could even listen to the last two times Swamp Dog was on the show. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne in any of those places. We're on Twitter at Bullseye. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 